the most important thing for entrepreneurs is just to build great products that are 10 times better than the existing alternatives out there. And with generative AI, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit for building 10x better products. Welcome back to Product Market Fit, a podcast for early-stage founders and operators who are looking to level up their startup's growth. I'm your host, Moshe Poltrak, and my guest today is Hikari Senju, founder and CEO of Omniki, an AI-powered performance marketing platform. In this episode, we talk about the future of advertising, how AI will change how we work, why personalization matters, and more. As you know, I'm very excited about the potential of AI, and I enjoyed Hikari's optimistic outlook on this technology. A couple of definitions before we start. LLM stands for Large Language Model. These are the types of models trained on enormous data sets that have exploded in popularity recently. Examples being OpenAI's ChatGPT and GPT-4, Google's Lambda, and Meta's Llama models. RLHF is reinforcement learning from human feedback. This is a method of training models based on so-called reward inputs that help optimize a model towards a goal. My goal with this podcast is to share practical tips with founders and growth practitioners to help you on your startup journey. Help others like you discover the pod by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you love to listen, or by sharing this episode on social media. And as always, I love to hear from you, so email me at hello at pmfpod.com or reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. Founders, has your startup's growth stalled out and you're not sure what to do next? Or have you just achieved product market fit and now need to build out your go-to-market function? You should consider hiring a fractional CMO from growth.co. Growth offers fractional CMOs paired with best-in-class digital marketing execution to support early-stage startup success. With a focus on seed and Series A companies, Growth has helped a number of SaaS, digital health, and e-commerce startups build their go-to-market function and scale up. To learn more and book a free consultation, go to growth.co, that's G-R-W-T-H dot C-O. Now, here's my conversation with Hikari Senju, founder and CEO of Omniki. Hello, Hikari. Welcome to the show. So happy to have you on today. Thank you for having me, Moshe. I'm really excited. So what is Omniki and who do you serve? Omniki is a generative AI company for advertisers. We generate thousands and thousands of iterations of creative content based on real-time marketing data, performance data, as well as customers' internal brand data to make sure that we're helping businesses scale their advertising very quickly while remaining brand safe and data safe. Very cool. So we're going to touch on a lot of those topics, diving into generative AI, the future of advertising and performance marketing. But just to get a little bit more of the background on you and the company, can you tell me, how did you come up with this idea? What led you to starting Omniki? Honestly, Omniki is my life's mission. I grew up in Westchester, New York. My grandfather worked at IBM and my dad's a painter. And so growing up by this intersection of technology, innovator die, Moore's law, world changes every six months, and also the obsession about design. How do you communicate with colors? How do you communicate with space, with texture? And so it, in many ways, it's a fulfillment of, of all these things. I studied computer science at Harvard and I cross-registered at MIT. I'd also gone into MIT. And this was actually the particular moment when I got particularly excited about generative AI. And so about a decade ago, I was taking a course at MIT and I saw some of the early generative AI models. It was at that time, it was kind of a more hallucinogenic and the pixelization was like very off, but like understanding Moore's law, understanding kind of the rapid rate in which the exponential rate in which technology improves, definitely thought that within the next decade, generative AI would surpass human capability of creating imagery. And then 
the implication of that would be pretty massive. And I realized that this was like the most exciting thing and this would be the coolest thing to dedicate my life to. Uh, and that was the exact moment when I said, I want to go all in on Generative AI. That said though, at that time, I wasn't very clear what the business idea for Generative AI would be. Uh, this is around 2014, 2015. And so I am entrepreneurial. I started two venture-backed companies in college. One of them was a friend meetup app. And the other one was a online education tutoring business. And in many ways, the things that we're working on today are kind of a continuation of the work we did on the online tutoring business. We say that advertising is really education at scale. And one of the big problems we're solving at my first real venture <laughs> scaled company, which I decided to focus on full-time after graduating, I received grants from Harvard and MIT, and we also received funding from Dormer Front and Rough Draft Ventures, was about personalized learning. How do you understand the students' learning preferences, their interests, the problems that they're facing, and how do you match them with the right tutors and the right content to teach them in the way that empowers them and enables them the best? And so those were the kind of the problems we're working to solve at this online education company. It was ultimately acquired by another ad tech company in the Bay Area where I led marketing. And it was really there running marketing and running the Facebook ads, running the Google ads that I realized this particular problem related to scaling creative content and creative A-B testing. The demand for marketers and advertising for testing content is infinite. There's always more platforms to run ads on. You need content for those. There's always new products that customers want to potentially test or new audiences they want to launch to. And... All that requires a thorough A-B test creative amount of bandwidth and human teams just aren't capable of producing that volume of content. And then the exact business opportunity regarding solving this creative challenge for marketers and advertisers that got me started on OmniKey. And I founded OmniKey May of 2018 with this vision of generating personalized ads and personalized experiences at scale. So you came to it with the experience as a marketer having managed large-scale campaigns and growth efforts for the company that acquired your startup. And the problem that you were looking to solve was the ability to scale creative performance and to optimize with data, right? To correct me if I'm wrong, you're using AI on both sides of understanding the context within the creative, yeah. as well as understanding the performance on the analytic side, and then generating creative with the generative AI models. That's right. Yeah, OmniKey, our core IP and our technology investment is really in the intersection of how data translates into experiences. So we're not a pure content generation company and we're not necessarily a pure analytics company. We translate data, which in and of itself isn't that valuable. It has to be turned into insights, it has to be turned into actions, it has to be turned into experiences, into those experiences. And so we're that translation layer between data to experiences. And so a lot of our IP and a lot of our innovations on building the data integrations with all the different data sources, whether it's with structured data from ad networks and ad platforms to unstructured data across customers' brand books and brand guidelines and customer conversations, to then translating those insights into generative experiences, starting with ads, but eventually all other experiences as well. And you're working right now with visual ads, right? Display ads for social, as well as copy. Is that right? Yeah, so we generate... Images, videos. Content. You do video. Yes, we do video, we do images, and we do copy. Uh, but Fantastic. predominantly visual assets, that's what we focus on. So, you know, there's lots of different advertisers out there, a lot of people that are spending money on Facebook and other places. Is there a specific ICP within that that you focus on, whether it's e-commerce or gaming companies or anything like that? Yeah, the majority of our customers are e-commerce, especially the mid-market enterprise. That is our ICP. 
And you're not focused on SMB right now. So our mission is to democratize growth. And we're building tools to empower anybody, any entrepreneur to instantly and easily connect with their customers. So we service SMBs, but we also are focusing on selling to mid-market enterprise as well. Did you start with the SMB and then add enterprise sales? Yes. Okay. Very cool. So looking into the future, what's the grand vision for the company if you're thinking like five, 10 years out? It's to generate all personalized experiences powered by data. And so going back to this initial point, right? One way to view it is we're in the refinery business. We're in the business of refining data into experiences. And so using generative AI to power personalized ads in an omni-channel way. So when you're seeing an ad on Google and YouTube and Netflix and Pinterest, they're all consistent and personalized for you. And it helps brands improve their return on ad spend, as well as then making sure that when that customer gets to your landing page, gets to you know a customer conversation, that we're powering those experiences as well. And then the vision here is to make this as accessible as possible for every entrepreneur so that anybody with a good idea can immediately start connecting with customers and get their ideas to market. So let's talk about the personalization aspect of it. Do you see that as where advertising is going, that everything is going to be hyper-personalized? And how does that fit with this other trend that we're seeing as it relates to privacy? So privacy is super important for us. And actually, one of the core value tenets of our company is data security. In fact, we have several offerings where customers can even deploy our models on-prem to ensure data privacy, data security, so their data is not being sent to some other company. When it comes to consumer privacy, it's also a very important thing. This is an area where I think you just need clear regulation from industry perspective. I think first, like the Pandora's box has been opened in terms of the value of personalization and real-time bidding for attention is one of the most lucrative innovations in capitalism, right? Having an auction for attention to display an ad instantly at the right time, at the right moment to the right person. And so I don't think that like GD is going to be put back into the box, but it's going to be a tension between regulation and kind of advancements in the industry in terms of technologically. For example, one potential trend is more things get pushed to the edge, right? So instead of having personalized data in some cloud server or these, you know, potential for us, even we might be generating content at the edge, personalized based on data just available at the edge instead of being shared with the main cloud server, for example, right? So there's definitely like ways of implementing this technologically, but I do think personalization does work. I mean, that's how Regular salespeople personalize their pictures based on who they're selling to all the time. Because it does drive higher ROI, I think that is going to continue to advance. But the way it gets implemented, I think, is a function of regulation. And that's ultimately for regulators to decide. Yeah. I personally think that consumers prefer targeted ads. I mean, it's more relevant to me. I'd rather see an ad that's something interesting to me. And maybe this is a little self-serving of me to believe that. But we're willing to make that sacrifice of a little bit of privacy or data in exchange for better ads, better experience. But that trade-off needs to be thoughtful and there needs to be honest and open. I do want to go back. You mentioned serving up the personalization on the edge. Can you elaborate on how that works? Is that done on the user's device browser? Can you do that through Facebook or do you need to own the end-to-end experience in order to serve that up? Sure. So I think there's ways in which we're doing personalization today, right? And predominantly when it comes to displaying an ad on Facebook or Meta or one of these larger ad tech platforms is, yes, targeting is more and more limited for advertisers, right? So the biggest lever that advertisers have now is creative content. And 
the type of creative content you upload on these platforms almost determines the distribution, right? Based on how the recommendation algorithms work on these platforms, for example, let's say that you like penguins, right? Like an ad that creates a penguin is more likely to be shown to you than an ad that doesn't contain a penguin. And maybe there's somebody else who likes lions or somebody else who likes giraffes. And so that's why it's so important for the marketer and for the brand to upload as many iterations of creative content as they can to expand the potential distribution of their messaging. So the more differentiated type of content you upload to these platforms, the more diverse of reach. And so this is where our core value prop comes in place, which is using data to generate these thousands of iterations of ads every week to really maximize distribution and maximize advertising ROI. So as a marketer, am I going in, creating my brand assets, my guidelines? I have, let's say, images of the product. I have some headlines, some offers or whatever, I put it in and then you guys take that and algorithmically create thousands and thousands of iterations based on that? Well, so this is the magical thing. You don't even need to specify. We'll do all that work for you. And that's done by our LLM. So you connect just like maybe a Google Drive file with your brand assets or maybe even an API endpoint to your databases or a HubSpot API connection or you know the advertising API connection, Salesforce API integrations. We'll ingest all this data will vectorize all that data and then train our LLMs on this data. So in some ways, the hope is that our AI can potentially understand your brand as well as you do. We can take, for example, a customer conversation that's happening on Zendesk. You know, maybe there's some strengths and weaknesses that are being revealed about the product through a customer conversation. We can immediately turn that into a scaled out advertising and marketing campaign instantly, right? That's really the power that LLMs provide, scale messaging, scale advertising, scale these creative experiences while ensuring that they remain brand safe. Fascinating, but you're also ingesting the data from the ad network, so you then yeah. feed that back into iterating exactly. the performance. Yep. Exactly, so the base understanding of the brand is based on our LLM, which when you onboard, you know, we request access to, if you're comfortable with your CRM platforms and your CDP platforms and your content management tools, we'll vectorize all these data to develop a model custom for you that deeply understands your brand. And that's in real time. Every time you update the data, our LLM also gets updated. And then we use that as a base to generate personalized creatives, personalized ads, creative briefs. That's a big component as well of our offering. We generate personalized creative brief for you with a mood board that you can then send to a creative partner that you may have, that you enjoy working with some high-end agency that does beautiful, slick ads that you know cost a lot of money. You know, we can help you generate those requests as well as provide unique insights about what's working for who and why. Very cool. What models are you using under the hood? Are they proprietary? Are you built on top of GPT-3 and GPT-4? What are you using yeah, there? These are proprietary models. Customers can also you know, have an option to use GPT-4 if they want. We also have some Llama models, Midified models. And so it really depends on, you know, the customer's okayness to sharing that data with, say, Microsoft. If you're not okay with sharing that data, then, you know, we can deploy proprietary models, custom LLMs as well. And that's really dependent on the customer and their needs. Aside from the privacy aspect, and of course, that's a concern when sharing data with OpenAI, you know, it's in their terms of service that they have access to that. So, of course, that is one of the benefits of building your own proprietary models? Are there other pros and cons that you consider as you're thinking about your product roadmap and what you're offering to your customers, whether to build on top of third-party kind of foundational models or to build your own? Yeah, today foundation models do outperform these fine-tuned models. I think the fine-tuned models though are shown to perform up par 
And the way I like to almost visualize this very fine-tuned kind of humidified LLMs versus these massive foundation models is like a baby's brain has, you know, a trillion neuronal connections, right? And as you grow and mature, you prune those connections and you develop your adult brain has fewer connections, but they're more specialized and they're definitely better at specific tasks than say a baby or a teenager. But a teenager or baby has infinite potential and things they can learn. They're like decently generalist at anything and they can pick things up quickly. That's the same thing, the way I view kind of these fine-tuned LLMs, minified LLMs versus the foundation models. The foundation models are kind of like experts at everything, but experts at nothing kind of thing. Like they're kind of savants and everything. These fine-tuned LLMs can actually be fine-tuned to be experts in specific categories. And so I do think that ultimately every business will have custom fine-tuned LLMs for every single kind of business need, a business department. And then, you know, they may use these foundation models in other instances. What about the, um, where the value accrues in this space? And I just saw Keith Rabot, you know, very successful founder and investor. He says that the generative AI space is not going to yield returns to VCs. I don't know if you saw that controversial hot take from him. Combination of barriers to entry and where the value accrues. I'm sure they said that about the internet at Microsoft, right? But then, you know, Google and Facebook and Salesforce all blew up subsequently, and Amazon blew yeah. up subsequently. I'm sure in the early days of the internet, it seemed like Microsoft would take everything as well. So I think we're still in the very early innings here. I do think that NVIDIA passed, you know, hitting a trillion dollars in valuation is a good precursor. It's kind of like when Cisco hit their insane market cap in the 90s. This is going to be a multi-decade wave of innovation, new companies, and it will disrupt and it will displace incumbents. That's disruption. LMs are not LMs. Generative AI are not generative AI. It's just the name of game in capitalism. And so some big companies will compete in this new environment. Others won't. And I don't think the answer is stasis or that, you know, it's going to just be the big companies. So it's, again, it probably the best analogy here is, again, like Microsoft and the internet. Like, I think at a certain point in the 90s, it seemed like Microsoft would capture all, you know, they had the Internet Explorer and they're competing with Netscape. And it seemed like, oh my God, the big tech companies are going to, you know, take over. And IBM was doing very well. But ultimately, you had all these new tech companies. So it's a bit early to say, but I'm always on the side of innovation, I'm always on the side of new players and generally against the side of stasis. And I think we live in a vibrant world and that is the rich world that capitalism provides, right? It, it right. opportunities for people who are innovative and create new products. Yeah, I'm optimistic on that as well. I do think that there will be a lot of value created, but I also think that there will be a lot of value destruction simultaneously. Yeah. And you know, picking winners is a tough game, right? That's why if you're good at it, you make a lot of money, but it's hard in this space. I talked about uh, competition a little bit. In AI, every day, hundreds of startups are, are being founded, right? And everybody's claiming to be AI now. How do you think about the competitive landscape and creating defensibility for your product, for your company? You know, in the early 1990s, Yahoo didn't necessarily have any inherent moat other than they're really the brand, right? Like they had this army of contractors that labeled the web and kind of like what OpenAI is doing with their RLHF. They had this army of contractors like labeling the web and creating these you know, various lists. And that's how they you know, established an amazing brand and grew so quickly. And that was enough to get them to becoming one of the most valuable companies. And I think especially in an area where there's a lot of noise, like the internet in the 1990s or generative AI today, I think there is a lot of value in brand. I think there's also a lot of value in data. You know, data is the kind of bedrock in which generative AI and AI is trained on. And so if you build great data workflows, have access to proprietary data, you build great products that incorporate data into the creative workflows, whether that is marketing or advertising or in other areas, you know, bio, genetics, et cetera, like those will be massive modes as well. And I think, you know, 
just ultimately at the end of the day, it's about just building great products. I think people sometimes overthink modes a little too much. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, just build a great product. And I'm sure if you build a great product and it scales very well and uh, it has a lot of users, there will inherently be network effects and scale effects associated with building a great product that customers love and, and definitely a brand effect. And you can always build these modes as well later. The most important thing for entrepreneurs is just to build great products that just, you know, are 10 times better than the existing alternatives out there. And with generative AI, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit for building 10x better products. And so if you're just focusing on that, I think my suggestion to entrepreneurs for VCs, I mean, I'm not a VC, so I don't know. Right. No, you're, you're right. I think that customer obsession beats competitor obsession, right? If you focus on your customer and deliver great value, you have a lot of opportunities for success down the road. This is the whole reason why I mean, the whole AI doomerism and things, I doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because... You know, capitalism ultimately rewards building great experiences for consumers, and that isn't going to change, right? And so companies are predatory. Companies that aren't providing real value for customers ultimately don't survive, don't exist. They either get regulated out of business or they just receive such a blowback that they lose all their customers. I mean, the beauty of creative destruction and capitalism is that it rewards value creation for the average consumer. And so as long as we live in a democratic capitalist world, I'm generally optimistic about you know any new technology wave that will benefit humans. Generally, I am a techno optimist, and I would like to agree with you. But I think that there are risks here that are unparalleled in examples from history in terms of how quickly can we react to some negative effects. But I do think that the doomerism is it's fear mongering a lot of it, right? People are selling it's clickbait. Not, it's not even fear mongering. This is the funny thing about AI, right? Like AI was like a term invented by researchers who received government funding. Like the concept of this was invented, you know, like, these are like from Dartmouth in the 1960s. And it was really created, like, we're going to create artificial intelligence. And, you know, this is a thing that's always been promised. And what AI is has changed over time from like regressions to now deep learning and, and transformers and such. But you know, one has to directly connect what AI is as concept to directly related to funding, right? And that actually AI doomerism, you know, who is the people publishing you know, all these AI doomer articles? It's the researchers. Why are they doing that? Because it benefits their funding, right? Like the more you can magnify overhype AI, the more funding you're going to receive. And so when I hear this news, like, oh, you know, XYZ leading researcher talks about AI doomerism, Yes, that's what they've been doing their entire career. That is what the AI industry does. They hype up AI to receive financing, to advance technology, to build great products and advance the field. But it's like always kind of had this contention of overhype and doomerism and kind of, you know, overstating the capabilities because AI in and of itself, like the concept is fundamentally a fundraising invention. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the side of those who create, those who have vision for the future and want to build a better place. And that's why we're in the startup game, right? Yeah. To build. But let's take that rabbit hole just a little bit further. I'm curious about your vision for how AI changes work in general for the average person. You know, there's going to be job displacement. There's going to be redundancy. How does that affect the average worker? How does that affect the economy? And I'm not talking about 30 years from now, you know, in the next three years or so. You know, it's really interesting. I read this news recently that there are actually today more people working in PR this year than they are prior to ChatGPT. It's like people talk about ChatGPT and generative AI replacing PR jobs and marketing roles. There are actually more marketers now. Why is it? Because AI empowers marketers. AI empowers PR people. It creates more leverage for them. It helps them actually create more value and drive more productivity from their work. And so if they can increase their productivity, then there's more demand for their jobs. If you can get one, you know, where else you need to have 10 marketers to do 
you know, one X of work. Now each marketer can do 10 X work. That means 10 X more revenue, 10 X more customers. I'm going to hire more people who can do those things. I believe that generative AI and AI is a democratizing force. I think it's, it empowers humanity. I think it's going to create more jobs and displace jobs. Um, and again, if you can improve the productivity of certain kinds of work, it will only increase the demand for those kinds of jobs. We're going to live in a more creative world. We're going to live in a more innovative world with more compelling products because it's democratizing everything. It's democratizing the ability for any startup to build AI products and get to go to market and enrich their experiences with AI. And that means us as consumers benefit in a myriad of ways from using digital products to genetics, to medicine, to healthcare, to everything. And then if those, the ROI of all these things improve, then there's going to be more demand for them, as well as create new kinds of jobs, right? Like today, maybe it's labeling and prompt engineering tomorrow, probably other things. But like, it's also going to create new categories of jobs. Care to predict how it will change the structure of marketing teams and mid-sized companies, large organizations, what new roles are needed and how are roles going to be looked at differently with the power of AI? Marketing is going to be turned from like a cost center and like a brand oriented thing into really more of a revenue driver and performance. One of the things we, we don't tell our customers is you used to have to have a huge team of salespeople to do direct emails, cold calls. It's not very effective anymore, right? And in fact, the ROI of say hiring a salesperson, like a seat, you know, to send a cold email, like what is the cost of an impression? Right, to see like an email headline from a sales rep. The cost of hiring that rep to write that email and send it to you, pretty expensive, right? What is the cost of showing you an ad and then having you click on that ad? It's substantially higher ROI than hiring. And then the ad can actually also be attributed and directly be correlated to sales. And actually the ad can be much richer in terms of the way it communicates an idea to you, communicates a value prop to you. And so I actually think marketing departments probably get larger. Uh, I think uh, we're going to see potentially more marketing taking over a lot of the sales capabilities. And obviously, it's going to change. Well, the nature of marketing is going to change as the ways in which you get to communicate with each other changes. But you know, demand generation is a core component of capitalism, and that's not going to go away anywhere anytime soon. There's always going to be new innovative products, and there's always going to be a need to communicate those new products to new consumers. And so I think also, again, you can have you know, smaller teams be able to market earlier, and then you're going to have larger companies be able to market much more sophisticatedly. Now, I meant to ask you earlier, you talked about the endless possibility of variations and personalization when it comes to the generative creative. How does that work from a oversight and compliance, especially in industries like you know finance or healthcare, where you have to know exactly what is being put in front of customers? Do you have those guardrails built in? Is there human oversight in the ads that are being pushed out? Yeah. So brand safety is definitely by far one of our motors operandi. It's one of the core value props we sell the customers. If anything, going to be one of the core value props of, of what powers Omniki going forward, right? I mean, yes, you can hopefully trust Meta to run and generate ads for you, but do you really trust you know a company that's purely focused just on maximizing their usage? You're going to need to have an independent company to ensure brand safety across different platforms. And we do this in two ways, right? I mean, the first way and one of the very first features we launched was Approval. So the customers have to approve every ad that is launched today on their behalf. Uh, we have a collaborative tool where anybody, you know, any stakeholders can log in and provide feedback, comment, approve on the ads, whether it's the legal team or the marketing team or the brand team, to make sure that every piece of content that's released is on brand. And then the second innovation is really the LLM. The LLM will deeply, deeply, deeply understand the brand. And because over time, our customers will be able to trust the LLM more that everything that is being communicated on their behalf is brand safe, it is on brand. And hopefully the goal is that the LLM hopefully can understand that company 
potentially as well, if not better than they do, right? I mean, a human marketer cannot go through all the customer support conversations and go through all the performance data and advertising and synthesize this all together to create a marketing campaign. But an AI can do this today. And so that means we can create more effective content that is more on brand, faster at scale and safe. That's really what the potential of what our product and technology has for our customers. Fantastic. Let's rewind going back to the early days of OmniKey. How did you get your first 10 customers? And at what point did you know, or maybe there wasn't an exact moment, when did you think to yourself that we have product market fit, we're on the right track here? The first 10 customers were predominantly through my network of friends, entrepreneurial friends, being a serial entrepreneur. I have a lot of founder friends who are willing to entrust a small part of their marketing budgets to me. I also, being based in San Francisco, is a massive benefit. I would literally go to every single startup event. And then after the event, go to the founder and pitch Omniki. And then you know some of them would give us a shot. And that definitely got us going forward. I think early on, also very lucky, I was part of Village Global, which is like a great network as well. And they introduced us to customers. And so just through the network was through the uh, kind of initial customers building, refining the MVP and the product. I think we really hit an inflection point around 2020. So that was in 2018. So 2018, 2020 is, you know, just building the product, iterating the product, talking to customers, you know, just being really lean and scrappy and also just surviving, getting your story out there, getting your messaging out there, getting data, getting access to different APIs, advertising APIs. And then 2020, I think, was an inflection point, especially with COVID. Suddenly, every company out of the blue had to pivot to digital, even companies that weren't advertising digitally. Everyone realized something like the only way I can connect with customers is through digital ads. That created a massive tailwind for our business that then resulted in a massive inflection of growth for us. At the same time, it came at a nice inflection point with particularly at that point, like around GPT-2, GPT-3, it was getting very good. We, the initial product was built on GPT-1 and BERT and some of these other transformer models. But with 2020, these models were getting very good in generating copy. And so, you know, if you feel like the market is pulling an incomplete product from you, that's really when you know you, you have that feeling of product market fit. And I think we felt that, you know, starting in 2020. And I'd imagine it accelerated all the more so towards the end of last year when AI just exploded on the landscape for everybody. Yes, absolutely. Suddenly, that, you know, Chad, GPT, and Dolly, and all these companies, they did a great job educating the market on what AI can do. And so that then definitely was another massive talent for us as well. What about TechCrunch Disrupt? You were on stage there at the startup Battlefield. How did that go? What was that experience like? We were the only generative AI company that was a finalist at TechCrunch Disrupt last year, right? We were ahead of the wave. This is before, you know, Dolly, Stable Diffusion, JadGP, all these other kind of things that blew up. So I think you'll be hard pressed to find one that isn't this year. <laughs> we have not many companies that be a generative AI company this exactly. year on, on, the, on the big stage. But last year, we were the only generative AI company that was pitching on stage that was finalist. And so, like, gosh, that was such a massive, you know, TechCrunch disrupts. I watched a massive fan of Silicon Valley, and it's just kind of the big, you the know. moment for the first, for a founder, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was dreaming of pitching, you know, right. on stage. And so I was so excited. I was so excited. Yeah, like, what a great company. What a great brand. What a great publication. And right. they did so much for the startup ecosystem as well. It's, and so it's, yeah, it was so exciting to be able to participate in that. And I think it definitely- Was it helpful? Was it helpful from a customer acquisition standpoint or more for like awareness with the VCs? It was definitely in terms of customer acquisition standpoint. I mean, it definitely is like badge approvals in a sense of we are like a legit tech company that's like presenting the product. And so, yeah, definitely massive benefit for sales as well. Awesome. So moving on to other ways that you've 
acquired customers over the years. And I'm assuming that you're dogfooding your product and using OmniKey to run a lot of your advertising. So can you give us a little bit of insight into what you've learned along the way from a customer acquisition standpoint using performance marketing and other channels that perhaps you've experimented with? Yeah, the vast majority of our customers come through either referrals or through our own ads. We dogfood our own product. Yeah, this probably also due to the constraint of being like essentially bootstrapped for the first couple of years. We had to develop a profitable growth model very quickly, and so we run our own ads very profitably. Especially in the earlier, more bootstrapped in the business, we would actually just reinvest the margins back into growth, and so that was very key in terms of. How we think about it in terms of art, you know, channels, we think very hard about the return of ad spend. When you work in advertising, you almost view everything in terms of, you know, like the ROI of attention, right? And some channels are longer in terms of the ROI of, of attention. So potentially SEO content, if you do it very well, can produce ROI for that attention and for that content. But sometimes it takes some time for those pages to get ranked and linked. Also, it is very competitive. The ranks are always changing. Um, two, direct response being one of the most immediate ROI things to partnerships, to affiliate marketing, et cetera. We all kind of view it in terms of like, what is dollar being spent? How also easy is it to attribute that revenue? Like, you know, some platforms may be good, but harder to attribute, in which case it's, you know, like billboards being one example of like a very difficult to attribute platform or like out of home like advertising. So it's a combination of ROI, attribution, like the ability to attribute, and then the timeframe of the ROI that all kind of goes into the mix of how we decide to like divvy up our advertising marketing budgets. That all makes sense. You mentioned SEO. As a marketer and as someone who is deeply embedded in the generative AI space, how do you think SEO is going to change over the next couple of years? You know, of course, Google recently released their generative AI features on top of search. Bing is being powered by ChatGPT already for several months now. Where do you think SEO goes in the next few years? Obviously, you know, SEO is going to change, right? In the sense that when you ask a question to Google, you're not going to necessarily get a link, less links anymore. You're going to get some kind of answer. But that will link to pages. Google will link because at minimum, they're going to link it to their other pages. They're going to link it to their YouTube so that they can make money from the ads from YouTube or they're going to link it to the web pages that host their ads so that they can like, make money that they're losing from the search. But like, therefore, the way that these links get recommended in a generative AI world is going to be different. It's going to be SEO-based. You know, who's going to rank who is the biggest expert in a certain chance or a certain kind of question or the most relevant to answering a question. It's Google's way of indexing the web. And so I think, yeah, the way they recommend the links going to be different. When they recommend the links are going to be different. But a lot of that is still to be determined. It's a lot of it is still up in the air. And then there's a lot of you know, regulatory things as well, right? So hard to say. It might have made sense in the early 2000s to invest a lot in SEO to make sure that your page was ranked because everybody was using Google to search to discover the web. But going forward, when there's a lot of competing chatbots that, you know, you have your own chatbot that's doing tasks for you and answering questions for you, the way that the web is categorized is going to change. And so, yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend who has a digital marketing agency and I was sharing something similar that the future of SEO may not be optimizing to users, it's optimizing to bots, right? To user agents. Yeah. And also conversion rate optimization will also follow a similar path where if I can just tell my agent, my bot to, hey, you know, get me a pair of shoes. It knows my preferences, knows my size, it knows uh, my style. It'll go find, you know, a deal and go through that that process on its own. Um, you know, doesn't need a human yeah. intervention. So that, that experience on, on the retailer side is very different. Yeah, absolutely. And then the default search engine that you choose to include it when the broth bot is searching the web is going to you know matter and then 
also be ads potentially that get shown to those bots. Also, you know, again, that changes the potential monetization of search as well. So presumably bots ignore the ads. So it's going to be very interesting. But yeah, to your yeah. point, yeah, I mean, I think for now, for now, when we're all programming right. agents, you know, the agent still does for us, at least, you know, we're programming agents to do competitor research for our customers. We have this right. feature that spawns an agent that does competitor research for the customer side of our business to help them with their creative strategy. That is currently done on Google. And so therefore, the way that the links are ranked definitely matter. But, you know, again, what is the potential model is, you know, long-term validity of search when nobody's clicking SEM links, right. you know, that, you know, how is that going to work? Because the bots aren't clicking the links like the ads. So those are going to be, I think, longer-term implications. But for now, I think, yeah, SEO does matter, even in this kind of intermediary in Asian world. But you're doubling down on performance marketing, right? That's what Omniki is yeah. built around. I think there'll always be a market for advertising. People like yeah. free things. And so as long as the humans have a bias for free things, and so as long as people have a bias for free things, there's always going to be a market for advertising to monetize those free right. things. And then people like attribution. So there will always be performance. I think there'll be more and more performance in attribution-related advertising, not less, because things you quantify are getting more and more every day. And then the advertising itself just performs such an important function in generating demand in a capitalist world, in a brand new market, products market, educate consumers about new offerings. I don't think advertising is going anywhere. And then also just the profitability of these like auctions, all these things. I think actually there's a lot of advertising revenue is like predicted to grow pretty increasingly, actually, I think like 8% year over year or something like this over the next year and then continue growth. So digital advertising is continuing to grow as an industry. And I think that's just going to continue, especially now, you know, if we enter this world, right, where now we have the VR, AR glasses, right? Like now there's an infinite place, this number of places where you can now post right. ads, right? And if everyone is entering a world where everything is, you know, they're all wearing goggles and the potential monetization vector space of that universe is like infinitely larger than just us looking at our little phones and our little screens. The nature of ads will definitely change, but the need for companies to be able to communicate to consumers or with buyers will always be there, right? Yes. Whether it's brand story or you know selling on product, there'll always be that need. Yeah, I mean, how else do new innovative products reach the consumer? I mean, like not everybody is an influencer, and influencers aren't always the best judges of great products. And so, like, there's going to always be a need for advertising. So you guys are available now for powering Meta Ads, Google Ads, LinkedIn. Do you have plans to do TikTok, Amazon? So we're on all those platforms. We're on Amazon. We're on TikTok. Okay. We're what on, about like connected TV, OTT? We're on connected TV as well, actually. Okay. We, have, uh, we run connect TV ads through a partnership. Very it's, cool. Yeah, and basically, any platform that, I can, that anyone's interested in running ads on that's digital, we can create content for that platform and we can integrate with that platform. Fantastic. Any exciting features or product announcements you have coming up that you're looking forward to? Well, we just made a big announcement this week regarding this large language model product, this brand safe, large language, advertising large language model. There's a massive sprint towards enterprise LLMs. I think every company is releasing their commerce LLM or their marketing LLM. But I think there's going to be a very specific need and use case for advertising LLMs. That's very specific to the use case of generating thousands of iterations of personalized content and the creative and marketing strategies to orchestrate those like, you know, multi-omni-channel personalized experiences while ensuring data security and brand security and speed and scale. And so that is an exciting announcement. Like we're just in the early innings of this generative AI wave. We're in the early early innings here. We're in the early innings. And you know, such again is the 
you know, the infinite creativity of humanity and humans, right? Like, and the capitalist system that rewards it, that there will always be better, faster, newer thing because humans get used to and get acclimated to what they have today. And the iPhone, you know, would be magic, you know, 10, 20 years ago. But now it's like, oh, this is, now they want more, right? People always want more. People are always, right. there's that inherent striving for more that humanity and humans have. And the capitalist system rewards the entrepreneurs that can meet that always yearning human spirit. And so I'm very optimistic about things. I mean, obviously there has to be things done on the regulation side. There are things that have to be done. But, you know, again, we live in a democracy. I believe in the collective wisdom of humanity. I think we're going to figure these things out. If we had another hour, we can uh, opine on whether democracy and capitalism will survive AI, but that's for another day. <laughs> well, here's the thing regarding, you know, humanity is that like, you know, the human neurons, I think 80 billion neurons in the human brain, and each neuron is scalar, right? Like it's not binary. And so, you know, GPT-4 has maybe a trillion parameters, but, you know, the human brain is 80 billion neurons that are, the variations of those neural activations is actually much larger than, you know, the trillion parameters that are binary. And then collectively, the collective humans, you know, the 8 billion people collectively with the 80 billion neurons, the hundreds, billion, trillion neurons, like AI is not going to enslave humanity anytime soon. Their compute power is still substantially less than the collective wisdom of humanity. And so I don't think we're anywhere close to AI displacing yeah. humans or destroying democracy. You know, there are things related to regulation that needs to be done in terms of, you know, protecting the mechanism to have democracy thrive. And I think there are some regulations that probably need to be changed, but that doesn't stop my enthusiasm. And, you know, always on the side of empowering humans to do more, I think is generally yeah. a bit. I love it. Your optimism and enthusiasm is contagious and I share that optimism and I'm excited for what's coming and the world that my kids are growing up in is going to be very different than uh, how we amazing. grew up. It's going to be amazing. It's going to yeah. be amazing. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. So uh, we close out with a traditional lightning round, which uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions. Um, tell me the first thing that comes to your mind in under 60 seconds. Sound good? Sure. All right. What's one productivity hack that you swear by? Sleep. <laughs> Eight hours? Yes. And exercise. I think sleep and exercise are important. Amazing. Uh, what's a book, podcast, and or newsletter that you find yourself recommending most often? Gosh, it's like choosing my favorite kid or something. I, <laughs> a number of books that I love. I, I definitely suggest reading as many books as possible, especially I love biographies. I think, you know, you always want to live life as if this is your second or third time at the game, right? Like, you know, you know, the first time you play the game, you fail, you die, and you're like, that was my first time. And sometimes people live life like that, right? But like, you know, you want to play like this is your third time so you can actually like win all the things. I think biographies are like a cheat code to life. Like if you can read through other people's way, other people play the game of, you know, their, their quote unquote game like of life, like you yeah. can then, you know, know where the trap holes are, the mistakes people make and mistakes people regret. And so just reading as many biographies of people, learning their lessons, that, can then make sure that when you go and see similar situations in your life, you know the cheat codes. Yeah, for those who love biographies, there's a great podcast called Founders. Um, yeah, David Sinrat. I love, yeah. love that one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great one. Cool. What's a popular misconception that people have about you? I think there's this misconception maybe that I'm like a really aggressive hustler because I'm like a serial entrepreneur or something like this. I genuinely, you know, I think part of being successful long-term in life is 
consistently doing the thing that you say you're going to do and, and doing it well and and in many ways you know under delivering and over promising consistently and so you know I have a very long term vision and view of my career and my life and and so I try to you know approach every relationship in a long term way and I don't know I always fear that you know because I'm an entrepreneur and you know people kind of you know have different views of entrepreneurs that I think long term success is a function of just uh, you know being a person of your word and doing the thing you're going to say you're going to do and like operating honorably. Fantastic. What's one thing you'd like to change about the venture startup world? I don't think there's enough venture capital, in, frankly, in, in the world, right? I mean, I actually think that the whole crypto wave, when anybody can invest in a crypto startup, was a reflection of the demand that people have investing in startups uh, that they couldn't really do because uh, they can't invest in traditional startups because there's all these regulations related to right. investing in startups. And therefore, they would invest in these opaque things and securities that seem like startups were all mostly scams. And so I think that like if we can just, you know, maybe change regulation a bit or something like this, obviously there needs to be consumer protection. You know, there are a lot of, you know, scammers out there. You have to protect yourself. You have to protect consumers. But like right now, I think there's a lot greater demand to investing and supporting startups uh, that it shouldn't just be limited to high net worth individuals, but that there does need to be, you know, some kind of regulation clarity regarding and obviously some safeguards established regarding that. But I think still like the limitations for financing innovation, there's more demand. Yeah. The accredited investor laws are pretty restricting. Yeah. And I think right. reflection of the crypto, I mean, the whole crypto boom was essentially yeah. all like average retail consumers, like wanting to invest in innovation, but not being able to. So they were investing this other thing that was like, not, you know, uh, like very different. And so um, if we could just put that energy into actual like startups that are like innovating in healthcare, innovating in life extension, like what it is, doing benefiting humanity, innovating, empowering, you know, entrepreneurs. And they think of all the cool products we can, you know, have, see in the market, if we can empower them. And, you know, there will be scams, obviously. I think, you know, kind of like in the late 1880s of the you know, American industrial boom and such like this, there's a lot more demand investing startups than, uh, than there currently is actually available for entrepreneurs to raise money for. Love it. Thank you, Hikari. I've enjoyed this so much. Final closing question. How can people reach you uh, if they want to continue the conversation and any final words you want to share with the audience? Sure. Yeah. Anybody can email me at hiatomniki.com or follow me on Twitter. Gosh, final words. I think it comes down to if you're an entrepreneur, just don't give up. I think the biggest thing that differentiates a person who is successful, a person who doesn't succeed is just that they didn't give up. And so it's never too late. It's literally, it's never too late. Some of the best companies are founded by people in their 50s and 60s. And so don't give up. It's never too late. Don't lose faith. <laughs> and yeah, have faith. Just, I think that's very important. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I wish you tons of success with Omniki and with everything else. And we'll definitely have to stay in touch. Thank you, Moshe. Same here. And I really enjoyed having this conversation. Thank you so much for this opportunity. That's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening. What did you think of that episode? Let me know via email at hello at pmfpod.com or find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I always love to hear from you. Make sure to bookmark or subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss upcoming episodes. And if you love the show and want to help us spread the word, please leave a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you love to listen and share it on social media. That really does help. Finally, don't forget to check out growth.co. That's growthwithoutdo.co if you're considering a fractional CMO for your startup. Until next time, wishing you rocket ship success in your startup journey.